2: Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Delicious Legacy. How would our modern day-to-day life be in a world without sugar? Once it was called Indian salt or white salt. The Chinese lay claim to be the first to make it among their many inventions. It seems the art of making it though came from India. Sugarcane is a giant grass that once was native to the island of New Guinea This is the history of sugar, and sugarcane, the plant Saccharum officinarum, which today is found growing in many places around the world, but crucially used in so many of our foods that it certainly makes it ubiquitous. Darius the Great, the Persian king, is said to have discovered in India a reed that gives honey without the aid of bees, and brought it home with him. A spice, as it was considered in the ancient world, more expensive than any other, and used for medicinal primary purposes. Dioscorides, the ancient Greek, a contemporary of Augustus, remarks that there's a kind of solid honey called saccharum, which is found in the reeds of India and Arabia the Fortunate. It resembles salt in consistency, and crunches in the mouth. Sweet foods are very rare in nature indeed. And exactly why, before the age of sugar, honey was the number one sweetener in the world eaten and used by people all over. Energy-giving, it was the only sweetener available in a pure and natural state. We describe people as sweet when they are nice, polite and so on. Clearly, sweetness is something we desire, something we need, something we revered as sacred since our deep ancient past. Honey and sugar have religious connotations too. But we also need high energy for our development. As a species, our need for sweet and sugar led us to develop ingenious ways to make things sweeter, from the development of sophisticated apiculture to agriculture and breeding selectively fruit-bearing plants that have more sugar. But how did sugar, as we know it today, came to the forefront of our lives, and how it created and was shaped by the transatlantic slave trade, colonialism and the exploitation of humans and nature? I'm very pleased to have Neil Battery on the podcast today the food historian and author of A Dark History of Sugar, whose book is out now and traces the origins of all of the above, sugar's production and consumption, especially during the darkest parts between the 16th and 19th century. Neil Battery, welcome to The Delicious Legacy.
3: Thank you very much for asking me to come on.
2: It's great to have you on the podcast. I've been following you... Not in real life, but on Twitter and your <laughs> uh, your your internet uh, output uh, for a few years now. I, I'm not sure how what was first the Twitter or I found you when I was looking for British food history and stuff, mm-hmm. and I found your blog perhaps. But I think it's been at least two and a half years, perhaps more. I'm not entirely sure. How long you've been uh, going on? Well, how we have been going on?
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like, feels like forever. Um, well, mm, it's one of those things where it's difficult to pin down an exact point. I, I only really got into food history because um, I didn't know anything about it. In fact, hmm. going back a little step, it, it was more getting into British cookery because I didn't really cook it. Cooking was a bit of a hobby and that was about it i just started a PhD in nothing really to do with history or food, <laughs> but I knew that I would be having to write a lot. And I'd been out of academia quite, for quite a few years, so I was quite worried about, you know, well, we don't know what it's like, you know, that kind of empty screen with a mm. flashing cursor in the corner, you know, and you just got to sit there and write something. So I thought, okay, well, I should just practice writing. So I thought I'd start a blog on a food I don't know, a, a cuisine I don't know about. So I thought, let's go English. Um, somebody bought me a book of English food by Jane Grigson. And I thought I, th- I thought it has been very um, sort of unique in my thinking. And I thought, oh, I'm going to cook every recipe, not realising that it's been done a hundred times by other people. <laughs> because I didn't really read blogs or anything. Uh, I was yeah. just doing this because I thought, well, maybe somebody will read it. So that will make me try a bit harder. And really, it's just a way of me getting over the fear of having that blank screen (laughs) when it Mm. came to writing. So that was the first blog, Neil Cook's Grigson, which no one reads, but that's fine. (laughs) But I got really interested in British food in in general. uh, And I kind of wanted to start writing essays that maybe weren't captured in the book by Jane Grigson, the, the book English Food. So that's when British food history took off. I suppose, mm. in maybe what, 2011 is my guess. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of one that, that got popular, I suppose. And, and then at some point between then and now, I've become a food historian. <laughs> I can't quite, can't <laughs> quite pin point. down the exact yeah. time.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's a long time. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, you have your podcast, which is called The British Food History. If,
3: yes it took me a while yeah. to think up that one when I was looking there isn't there is not a podcast about the history of british food
2: there you go So I, mean, I thought
3: right and well, while I'm having that before somebody else <laughs> before somebody else thinks of it <laughs> brilliant
2: yeah that's that's how you used to go yeah it's kind of I was kind of in that the same train of thought really trying to find something that will be historically it will have historical connotations in a way but mm. not too obvious. But also, you know, it's food. So kind of combine those things. In no, a you've, way got a good,
3: is... you've got a good title. I'm rubbish at titles. So <laughs> I was very glad I could basically avoid <laughs> thinking, thinking <what> about... Thinking <laughs> <laughs> about...
2: Great. You're fantastic. Today's subject, uh, we're going to discuss about sugar. Because mm. you wrote a book about sugar.
3: I did. The Dark History of Sugar. Exactly. Which, as it turns out, is basically the whole history of sugar. <laughs> there's not there's not many light bits. Oh, dear. <laughs> there are few. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so the book was released uh, when?
3: It was back in May of this year, 2022.
2: Mm, great, great, fantastic. And it's called A Dark History of Sugar, of course. Mm-hmm. Basically... So I've read it and it's brilliant and oh, thank it has you. so many so many many facts uh, uh, and so much history and a lot of things that um, yeah, obviously I don't know and I think most of people don't know.
3: Um, yes, I think I think yeah. people and I consider myself one of these people. You think you know. Mm. Yes. And then you start looking at it and you go oh my lord.
2: <laughs> Great. Um I was going to ask you. So obviously before we had sugar as mankind, humankind, mm-hmm. obviously before we had something else, we had honey and fruits, right? We had
3: all that stuff. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the origin, I suppose. Yes. of fleeting, seasonal gluts of sugar. So that was, yeah, most commonly fruit. When it comes to, you know, really highly concentrated sugar, it was, it was honey, mm. I, I would say. I mean, maybe to a lesser degree, some vegetables... Mm-hmm. It was really fruit and honey, but I mean, I mean, what I don't know what percentage uh, sugars is in any in a regular random average fruit, but they're mainly water, I would say, mm. fruits are. Apart from maybe a date, they're probably very yeah. sugary. So really, yeah, even to the vast degree, most of the time, the sugar you're getting from fruits is very dilute with other stuff. Yeah. So honey was the real big important one. And you see it in, you know, all the major religions, you know, mm. land of milk and honey and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It was considered manna from the gods.
2: Mm-hmm. And um, so when, yeah, obviously
3: with, with um,
2: sugar, mm. when are the first um, evidence that we started um, actually using sugar as um, as humankind?
3: Well, when it comes to sugar cane, because that's what we're talking yeah. about when we're talking about sugar. Mm. Sugar cane, if you remember from school, <laughs> sucrose. You got to go back to 8000 BCE New Guinea for the first time anybody was growing sugarcane. Mm-hmm. In fact, the New Guineans were pretty, you know, they're very important because they were also the first to grow bananas and yams as well, two other extremely important <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> foods. Yeah. So they were really on it. They were very good gardeners. But they were really only growing it as a snack food. Mm-hmm. So they would basically, they'd selectively bred it to have a thinner sort of skin, a thinner rank because it's, it's a bit like w- wild um, sugarcane. It's a bit like bamboo, mm-hmm. so it's actually quite yeah. woody. Yeah. But they bred it to have a thinner skin so they could cut it and chew it themselves. Right. So that's the origins of sugar. And this is, as I suppose, all this bit is the not-dark stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is all kind of nice. It wasn't an important source of carbohydrates because they had bananas, they had yams, those boxes were already ticked. So this was just a little kind of fun snack for them. But if you're thinking about actual sugar as a product, you have to go to India. Right. Probably. How it got there from New Guinea, we don't know. Mm -hmm. But if you've ever grown um, a, a kind of big grass like bamboo, you'll know it's basically an aggressive weed and it ends up popping up all over the place in the garden. So it could have just got there on its own accord just by spreading mm-hmm. or it could have been taken by traders we don't know yeah but yeah about 1000 bce we
2: reckon mm, so we well, are in india and we have the first um, mass i guess cultivation and um, extraction of sugar yeah this
3: is where they're trying to produce a, make a, a solid product i suppose um, it's not sugar crystals mm-hmm. it's basically an unrefined sugar well we, we we i mean if you if you cook any kind of food from from Asia, really, and a lot of Africa, uh, you'll come across um, jaggery, yeah. Uh, which original name for it is gur. Yes, the kind of lumps of you know, kind of pale brown, unrefined sugar. So mm. that's a, that's a, an Indian invention. Curiously enough, jaggery is actually a, an African word. Right, um, gur is from the time of old Hindu, say a thousand BC. Mm. Jaggery is actually the name given to Gur by African slaves or their descendants. Right. But going forward in time, quite a few centuries, there were Africans or people of African origin um, with Indians in India growing sugar. So you get this weird mix of cultures and words, which I think is quite interesting. I just assumed jaggery was a, a word that was Indian. (laughs) Yeah, 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 true, true, yeah. (laughs) But, I mean, as we might find out, depending on what we talk about, the mixing of, I mean, it's possibly one of the best, one of the good things that's come out of it. I mean, although no one was saying it it at the time, Mm. but, you know, the great thing about sugar is lots of different cultures mixed. Right. I mean, they had to go through a whole lot of crappy times, especially with (laughs) the English, you know, but hopefully we're, we're coming out the other side. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the, the kind of mi- mixing up of lots of different cultures, uh, you know, the production of melting pots of cultures, I suppose. Which, yes, it, it, people sometimes view as bad, but I should think, I hope most people see that as a good thing now.
2: Mm, I agree with that. Okay, so we have, um, so we have the Indians that, that produce this refined product, uh, jaggery, mm-hmm. and they started using it in cooking and as medicine and all that stuff.
3: Yeah, because it's around this time you. You've see the first mentions of sugar. There's no real recipes, but there's mentions of sweetened rice puddings or um, making of sweets where you mix them with ground rice and spices and and roll them into balls or maybe um, fry them. Probably not that dissimilar to what you might see in Indian sweet houses now, Mm. really. Very important religiously. Different cohorts of people within Hindu society could not eat certain things. If you were considered a holy person, you know, there were lots of things off the menu, you know, Mm. uh, most or maybe even all, maybe apart from milk, all animal products were not allowed. But sugar was considered so wonderful that everybody should be allowed to eat it. Mm hmm. So, yeah, so very important in, in Hindu religion and, and still is very important too.
2: Right, right. And um, from there, I suppose, ancient Greece and Rome, honey was a king. Uh, so everything was sweet, sweetened by honey. Mm-hmm. So, and I guess throughout this uh, part of the, the Western civilizations like Mesopotamia and in Egypt and Greece yeah. and Rome, they used honey mm-hmm. throughout antiquity. Um, the first mentions, I suppose, there were, or the first contact with the Indians from Alexander the Great onwards, there was the first contact with sugar, right?
3: That's right, yeah. But nothing really seemed to take off. I think it's one of Alexander the Great's um, generals went to India. Yes, they found sugar, they brought it back. Whether Alexander the Great actually saw it himself, I I don't know. But they obviously Mm. thought, well, this is interesting enough to bring back. But everyone was just like, eh, it's all right. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah. I suppose uh,
3: it was difficult
2: to extract it and make it in a huge in a in a commercial
3: yeah, I mean, industrial manner. It's a massive process producing sugar even you know un- unrefined um jaggery. You know it's, it's quite a process. So yeah, I mean I, I guess if you did want to make sugar you'd have to really want to make it and mm. put in a huge amount of effort and like you say, if honey is the favourite, and let's face it, it's better, <laughs> objectively. <laughs> honey is so much better than sugar. You know, wh- why Why go through all that um, effort, you know?
2: Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I suppose one thing, maybe, maybe we could explain a little bit to our listeners mm. about uh, if we have any uh, idea how they used to make sugar or how they used to extract this. From the plant, because I mean it's a very intensive process. I mean, do you have any any vague idea, any any?
3: Well, when it comes to the when it comes to India, in India, you mean? Yeah, yeah.
2: Back then, yeah.
3: Uh, it's essentially just the canes were probably crushed, not unlike you would make flour, mm-hmm. just between stones. Stones, yeah. And they would capture the juice, came out of it. You know, or or similar perhaps how some countries produced olive oil. So that's just kind of, you know, uh, grinding and turning is something that pretty much most civilizations were doing around that time. You know, they had that ability, the larger ones anyway. So that that was basically it. And then boil down. And it's really quite difficult. I mean, I don't know if you've done much cooking and done much sugar work. You know, it does get difficult when you've started. When you've got a very concentrated sugar syrup, things can crystallize, things can burn. Mm, Yes. So I guess that's the point at which India stopped. You get like a thick, very dark, gloopy substance, and you just lay it cool down, and it becomes, it goes a little bit paler as it cools and dries. And it's not like they, they didn't have the wherewithal to go to the next stage. They were, they were just thinking, "Well, we're happy with this. <laughs> mm. This is nice." And it's one of those funny things, isn't it? Because pure sugar just essentially tastes of nothing else but sweetness. But things like jaggery or um, soft brown sugar, you know, it's su- such a, a more interesting flavour. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I can understand why they didn't really go any further with the purification, because it's pretty pretty good stuff.
2: Yeah, true. Yeah, and then what, what's the next stage then, I mean, of, of uh, the sugar's uh, uh, travel and evolution from east to west? Because we find it in um, the Arab world, like... Six seven
3: hundred years later, yeah, it's, it's odd. more, yeah, really odd. It just appears fully formed, <laughs> so it's <laughs> just a great big gap. The The Persian Empire had similar flirtations in the past with sugar going to India, but there's about a gap of a thousand years between them <laughs> coming across right. it and kind of doing the same as Alexander the Great and went, mm, Yeah, it's fine, but you know, I'm not bothered, but suddenly, a thousand years later. They're making sugar, and it's what we would think today of as sugar. So, right. re- well, reasonably pure crystal, uh, crystal sugars that are well, maybe not pure, brilliant white, but not too far off.
2: By product that is um, basically taking the world by storm,
3: yeah. Because yeah, and it's a system that they or a method that that, that we, well, assume they we assume they developed because we don't know because right. there's a great big gap, but um, it really didn't change. I mean, it was modified, but it really wasn't changed until you get to industrial sugar production in America, Mm. which is quite a feat, really. Mm, mm, mm. And they, for some reason, when you read about uh, the history of sugar, no one really seems to make a point of that. You know, it's... I mean, I'm certainly not saying it's anyone's fault for sugar taking over the world. I think it it just shows how um, resourceful and intelligent they were. I mean, they would go on to form a a, a great big empire. So they obviously knew what they were doing and they were highly organised and they produced this stuff um, for themselves. You know, they weren't... It wasn't a cash cow for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They weren't selling it all around the world at massively inflated prices. They were just selling it within within their empire as a treat for each other. Right. So again, not to not not really that dark, but I guess that that, <laughs> that process that they'd um, refined, you know, essentially was the one that uh, the Europeans picked up and ran away with.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, and that's uh, kind of uh, the next um, chapter on our sugar history, which, yeah, becomes darker. Um.
3: <laughs> yes, that's so yeah. um, unfortunately, I mean, I, I had a very short, a very low word count, 70,000 words, which sounds a lot when you start writing, but mm-hmm. then when you find out there's so much stuff that is dark, talk about sugar. I'd written loads about the Persians and the, uh, and the Muslim empire, but because it wasn't, none of it was dark, I kind of had to really pare it back and con- mm. condense it all. But it's a really interesting uh, area, and if people are interested in it. There's loads of stuff, loads of stuff available online as e-books. Ah. Yeah,
2: but back uh, but back to your book and the dark hmm. history of sugar, I suppose. Yeah, so you would investigate all that stuff, and then obviously we go forward in time and we reach the time of... Um, the European colonization and exploitation of, of the planet. <laughs> yes. As such. So we have, um, who were the first um, Europeans that developed
3: a system for
2: a, a mass cultivation and industrialization of, of, of the sugar plantations?
3: Well, it, it was born out of the Crusades, ironically.
2: Uh-huh. Aha. <laughs> Another positive thing <laughs> from the Crusades.
3: Yeah, yeah uh- the first Crusade, about eleven hundred, isn't it? Yes, off they all went, captured the Holy Land. Um, there was the siege of Acre, which was, um, you know, a, a potential they had potential to lose there. There was were being there was a siege. They were starving. Stories differ. Some people gave them sugar cane or sugar, and it basically stopped them from starving. And they thought it was great. They brought it back again. People were a bit. Mm-hmm. That's all right. But then <laughs> but then the second crusade and people really took more notice of of sugar, sugarcane and how it was produced. That's when it really became a thing. And what you got were really very rich groups of people, notorious groups I suppose, the Knights Templar, the mm-hmm. Hospitallers, you know these kind of um, warrior knight monks. I guess yeah. it would be yeah. the best. <laughs> you know, they, they were they were very high up in the echelons of society all across Europe, up, up Western Europe, and they were putting the money in mm. to pay for first of all the sugar in the in the Middle East because you know they essentially kick, kicked everybody out. Of course, there was toing and throwing, and suddenly you know getting the upper hand and the lower hand, and all, it, it went on for centuries, didn't it? Yeah, and eventually they kind of thought. Okay, we're not going to win this. <laughs> but at least we now to make sugar now. And they essentially went westward, kind of on the, the north coast of the Mediterranean and through the yeah. Mediterranean islands, trouncing through, basically. Right. And making sugar is a very, it uses a huge amount of energy, hmm. unbelievably large amount of energy. If you've got seven kilos of juice, uh, sugarcane juice, you have to boil away five kilos of water to get two kilos of sugar. Sugar, So it was one of the first environmental disasters essentially caused by man because they deforested the whole of the north coast of the Mediterranean and, and the islands, like, you know, Sicily and Cyprus and those kind of places. Wow. Not for a second thinking they were doing anything bad.
2: Madeira and the Azores and all these islands were big, big uh, forested, essentially rainforests, tropical mm-hmm. rainforests. And yeah, they were in a few years they were completely devastated, <laughs> cut down, yeah, for for sugar production. Yeah,
3: yeah, it was shocking. And I mean, again, one of the things that people don't realise, you know, we, we think of how the indigenous races of the Americas, North and South Americas, as well as the the West Indies, were well murdered and exploited, and still and still are. Mm. You know, shunned by a lot of white colonists because that's what we still are. <laughs> I'm going to mm. include all of all of those white people in this. There's still, <laughs> it, what, what, but what people don't realize, there were indigenous people on on Madeira as well who went extinct. You know, right? Okay, uh, that's something that's not. Uh, it's not, and again, I, about. I didn't get. Unfortunately, it's one of those things where I didn't get a chance to really um, focus on that mm. in the book. I do talk about you know, what happened to indigenous races in general, I suppose, hmm. um, when we do get to the Americas. Yeah,
2: yeah, which is yeah, it's exactly our next step now from Madeira and uh, the time of Henry VIII. Mm. Then we go to the discovery, discovery, I mean, the, um, exploitation of uh, Americas from Columbus onwards. So there, again, initially the Spanish went for gold, obviously, and to discover a new route, yep. a new sea route. But um, how did that end up being... Um, The place that that sugar actually took roots and the dark history of sugar actually uh, is where where it becomes really, really dark. Yeah,
3: well, Columbus, well, he had a... Well, it wasn't his wife, but she wasn't a mistress. He was in some kind of relationship with a lady called Beatrice and her father was a big sugar baron, I suppose, a Mm proto-sugar baron on the Canary Islands. And when he went on his second voyage... So first voyage makes friends, in inverted commas, with the indigenous people. Uh, second yeah. time, he goes on, um, he's asked to bring with him, amongst other, amongst lots of other people with different trades, as well as various different crops, so either cuttings or seeds, off he went, and in amongst there was some cuttings of sugar cane. So from the mm-hmm. get-go, really, sugar's involved. It didn't really become the main focus, because as you say, really what they wanted was gold. They also took other things like tobacco and indigo and various expensive dye woods like sandalwood. You know, it wasn't it wasn't just about sugar, tobacco as well as well eventually also went over another thing with a dark history, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Columbus did not care about the sugar. It's very likely his sugar pretty much died, and Mm -hmm. really, it required bedlam have occurred so so off they went so they they arrive at the island with a letter from the king to the people saying you don't own this island anymore the king owns this island and if you i'm paraphrasing (laughs) and if you essentially try and stop us or argue with us then you're essentially breaking the law and that's exactly how they took over and Columbus made a note in his, in his journal saying just how I guess weak and feeble and trusting and nice these, the, the people were that, mm. you know, I think he said, um, it just took one or two men to uh, overcome 50 of them because it was so trusting. And he'd been around once shaking hands with them, go, yeah, great, great. Right. And then off he went rubbing his hands going, "And these going to be easy to kill later? There's a Christopher Columbus day, you know, where he's celebrated in America and He's one of the vilest people to ever have existed. (laughs) He's just (laughs) cruel. He was extremely religious and really, he terrorized not just the indigenous people, but also, you know, the the other Spanish as well. Mm -hmm. And really, essentially, got all the gold. They'd taken all the land. They hadn't bothered growing staple crops. They were starving they decided that they should eat all the meat but didn't because that's all they had to eat and they didn't breed more animals so they ended up starving it was just a disaster some official from Spain came over and he was greeted with um, I think seven men hanging from a gallows when he when he went into the harbour because they were just they were the people were were revolting because it was just absolute nightmare Christopher Columbus is sent back to Spain in shackles for the mismanagement of it all. And this guy ends up taking it over and it's just one regular guy. I've forgotten what his um, original um, trade was, but he was something like maybe, I don't know, an ex-surgeon or something. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, people, we're focusing on the wrong thing. It doesn't matter about the gold. What we need to do is we need to make sugar. And really, it was... Not that much to do with Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus came back about seven years later. I mean, you'd hang your head in shame, wouldn't you, if it was you? But, you know, he just comes straight back with a load of money that he's financed. and He just starts to grow massive plantations and starts putting other people out of business. Oh, he was a bastard. Ah.
2: (laughs) Christ, yeah. (laughs) He doesn't stop. No. He just doesn't stop being a bastard. Greedy,
3: murderous, conniving, underhand, cruel. The list, the list of um, words goes on that you could use to describe him.
2: Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbin Greek, UK's leading Greek telcatesan supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Whatever your needs, Malbin Greek has you covered. You can shop online and have the divine and delicious goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at Art Seventeen Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SC Sixteen. For ET, Bermondsey, London, Malbin Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. And for you dear listeners, there's a fantastic discount of 15% if you use online the discount code delicious.
1: Hello, hello, this is Dr. Ran. And this
0: is Dr. G. And together, we're the co-hosts of The Partial Historians. We love ancient Rome and all the quirks that humanity has to offer. Join us for our narrative episodes as we explore the history of Rome from the founding of the
1: city. Or perhaps you'd like to drop by for our special episodes on topics such as historical films, ancient personalities, academic guests, and our never-ending
0: fight about who was the better emperor, Augustus or Tiberius. You can find The Partial Historians wherever you listen to quality podcasts such as The Delicious Legacy. We're out and about on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.
2: And obviously all these concepts of land ownership and all that it was, meant nothing to the locals, to indigenous people. There was no concept of the land belonging to someone. Yeah, and, exactly. It just was a yeah, completely
3: alien concept. I mean, it is a s- bizarre concept when you think about it. Yeah, You, o- you own a piece of the planet. What? What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we're so used to thinking yeah. of it in those terms you know. Absolutely absolutely yeah. Um so
2: yeah I mean that's that's what um kickstarted it and um yeah the West Indies basically was the fertile ground for sugar growing and production and obviously then
3: Yeah it was it was great the West Indies yeah because it was um, tropical or near tropical um so they had they could grow it most of the year. When they're growing it in places like Spain, you know, it was only about a third of the year they could, they could grow it. Yeah. It was too cold otherwise. Yeah, yeah. yeah so they were... I mean, the, the people working It was relentless for the people working there. You have to... Um, when you um, cut down the sugar cane and then crush it in the um, roller mills to get the juice out, you have to start boi- boiling it down within 24 hours. Otherwise, it starts to ferment and it spoils the flavour. It goes sour. Mm. I guess, like... Sourdough, I suppose, you know, so it's, so it's kind of fermenting <laughs> microbes. And you don't want that taste in it. You want a nice, just pure sweetness, I suppose. That's what they Sweet. were aiming for. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, when it was harvest time, those mills were going 24 hours a day.
2: Mm.
3: And they were using mainly, you know, ind- Indigenous people to work those mills. They all died from, well, from their point of view, from the Europeans' point of view, they died because they were feeble and basically crap. Whereas, mm. in fact, they were enslaved, and they caught all the diseases, European diseases, that they'd never met before. Yeah. And that basically… didn't have any immunity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, smallpox was the was the major one, you know, it essentially sent them… Well, several tribes did go extinct, you know, never, never yeah. to return.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's some numbers that I remember for Hispaniola where Columbus landed. So Hispaniola was That's right. inhabited by five to eight million people. So there was there's some estimates, like three between three and eight million, a lower and the highest yet. Yeah. So about we say three to eight million people lived in Hispaniola. And then by by like forty years later it was what? 20, 200, something yeah. like that.
3: Yeah. Just, <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. In one generation, I guess, it's just all gone.
2: Yeah, the devastation that uh, was caused, it's immense. We cannot really... There's no parallel like this, I don't think.
3: No, I don't think so. And what I kind of think of is, you know, when we think about the medieval period, you know, we think, oh, it's all backwards and dark and vicious and horrible, and everyone's got war hammers and they're cutting each other's heads off or whatever. And we think of... The modern period, <laughs> which we're in now, as is some enlightened yeah. time. I mean, the cutoff between what what's modern and what's medieval, I mean, changes depending. But it's usually, I think most people say, oh, it's when we discovered the Americas. Because it's like, yeah. well, I know we don't we don't know where Australia is at this point, but it's you know, it's globalization begins. Yeah. But what really begins is the mass enslavement of the indigenous people of Africa and the Americas, you know, something that we're, well, I'm going to say we've not, we've not even started clearing up the mess. In fact, we're probably still making it more messy. And that's the mark of of the modern world. That shitstorm. storm. I'm allowed to to swear. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You know, that's, that's basically, that's the point at which it becomes modern. And I just kind of think, hmm. I wish we had, um, I, <laughs> I wish we could pick. Prefer the medieval. Yeah, medieval sounds a lot better. Or at least could we pick yeah. a different date? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that. But I mean, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, we we in Europe, you know, we're, we're victims of propaganda really, you know, we're, we're told all this mm. stuff is amazing. And these various, you know, certainly if you're British, the British Empire was amazing. Sp- you know, I'm sure in, in Spain, they probably think that their empire was a pretty amazing thing too. And, I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm saying it was a very mixed bag, and there was a lot of really... You don't, from the point of view of... I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself, I suppose, but it's the British Empire I know more about, because I'm British. Yeah. You don't get to become the biggest empire on the earth by walking in there going, oh, hello, nice to meet you, shake hands. You know, that's, that is not what happened, obviously.
2: Yeah, that's... <laughs> Not what empires do to become empires. Yeah, exactly. You're
3: ruthless is what you are. Yeah. But we're sold, and many people still believe, and probably because we are still sold it, you know, that we went in and made things better. Um, Of course. And, you know, that's what the other empires were also doing as well. It wasn't just, just, I'm not picking on Britain or England, folks. (laughs) There were other empires. There are other empires available.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, there's no single empire in the history that wasn't ruthless and violent. So we're kidding ourselves. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) If we think, uh, yeah, but no, we were the good ones. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Not really. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Not really. This violence and this um, exploitation of uh, the indigenous people Mm. and cultures Mm. follows a very close path with the sugar, the past production of sugar. And yeah, the yes,
3: exactly, yes. So, like I said before, you know, there were other things being grown and people or there were things being mined as well as grown. You know, it's not just sugar's fault. And at this point, I suppose it isn't sugar's fault. It's almost a secondary thing. But once it gets going and people start producing that white gold, that's when empires are created rather than just colonies. Mm. As soon as sugar's being produced, it all changes because it uses up Indigenous people and Africans, like I mean, we haven't really talked about how the Africans got involved in that. Maybe we'll go back to that. But you know, it was enslaving and killing all these people, and it was deforesting the place. So and it was making people rich and it was just fueling things. And then you've got the Portuguese who went down to Brazil, and then you've got France and England going, um, we'd like to be involved too, please. <laughs> And you know they they take a few small islands, and then England, you know, really takes over. Eventually, becomes the British Empire, but it's the English Empire that gets things going. And suddenly, you've got this fight between different nations, empires, all going off thousands of miles away from their home countries. You know, and it's as you can imagine, mm. you know, it's a cutthroat place to be. I mean, I'm not making excuses for any of them. <laughs> they were, not, you know, they were dastardly people. But, I mean, if you were just some poor peasant, because they didn't have peasants working there too, or, you know, of, of European descent. I mean, it must have just been awful, you know, really bad.
2: Difficult uh, environment, obviously tropical. The Europeans aren't used to it. They enslave and kill and work to death the locals. And then, obviously, you need some new workforce uh, to... Grow all this uh, all this sugar. So what do you do?
3: Yeah, exactly. Yes, you, you do have some peasants working there that you know are people maybe that tried to set up their own plantation but found that they well they didn't have the aptitude for it or they didn't have the money for it, so they ended up just working for someone else. So that that was all fine, but it wasn't really going to cover it. They were used to having these big workforces of I guess unskilled labour, so mm. they turned to Africa. Now, they've already actually been buying slaves from Africa uh, since they were on the Canary Islands. Mm-hmm. And it was purely, I suppose, bad luck rather than at racism, at least what we think of as racism today, and this yeah. can we get on shaky ground at this point. I realise I'm a white Englishman talking now. I'm very aware of this. Slaves had been have been used, and that you well, you'll probably know more about this than me. You know, slavery has been part of civilization forever, and it's always bad. Mm. Of course it's always bad. But usually um, slaves are often prisoners of war or people who are in the way. And they are just ways of overcoming people. So you can take that land yourself. But was different with the slaves in Africa, they were being moved away from Africa to go somewhere else. That's a big difference. Yeah. Suddenly that requires trade. And then there's a real slave trade. I mean, I suppose the Portuguese are the ones that really went for it. But the reason the connections there is, well, it's really sad, I suppose. 16th century, there's a Portuguese captain exploring, (laughs) in inverted commas, Africa, to take ivory and spices and gold and maybe some people back, you know, some indigenous people back to court to be gawked at by, (laughs) by the king or by the prince or whatever. Standard stuff at the time, unfortunately. yeah, They came across some men of African and Asian descent, and they were were all Muslims. Obviously, they must have come from where, I guess, Morocco and Angola are now. And they Mm must have bumped into them, and they thought, well, they're pretty exotic. We're going to enslave these guys. Again, nothing abnormal so far for the time. But what happened was they said, hang on a minute, you can't be enslaving us because we're Muslim. And I know you're Christian, but we're basically worshipping the same God here. We're godly people, you know, we're not in inverted commas savages. Right. And they said, right, well, we can't be enslaved, but we know some people who can. Not only can you enslave them, they want to be enslaved. Because they are, and I don't know how well you know your Bible. (laughs) Uh, I don't know it very well. Um, But they are the sons (laughs) of Ham. And Ham was one of the sons of Noah. Right. um, Who got cursed by Noah. I won't go into the reasons. (laughs) (laughs) It involved him getting drunk and naked. It's very strange. I don't really understand. But anyway. Yeah. (laughs) He was, Ham was cursed by Noah to a life of servitude. And not only that, He included all of his descendants in that curse. And these captured Muslim guys essentially said, that's who you're going to find in Africa. Right. And they went, okay, well, we'll let you go then. And off they went and collected a few Africans, maybe a dozen or two, captured them, bundled them in. And off they went to supplement the workforce a little bit in the Canaries and in Madeira. They were brought over to Hispaniola, to work in the mines, and they yeah. noticed because Africa and Europe kind of do mix a little bit, they were brought over and they weren't affected by the diseases like the indigenous people mm-hmm. were. Yeah, so it's one of those things where you kind of their weird logic proved them right because off they went, all the indigenous people died from the West Indies. You take these Africans from Africa and they don't die. And why is that? It's because they want to be slaves, obviously. 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 Wow. Oh, yeah. that's essentially how the link between Africans, African slaves and sugar and, and I guess, the history of America, I suppose. Yeah, the new world. Began, Uh, yeah, yeah. that new world. So that's how it happened, which is, yeah, really sad. I mean, it's almost just like bad luck. You know, which I'm not sure if that's, I wish it's kind of worse for some reason, I think. It's one of those things that kind of really gives me a, a shiver when I when I think about it, you know, how how different the world could have been.
2: Yeah, small events, yeah. small changes. Uh, yeah, really. It's not, yeah, it's nothing, there's nothing that um, predetermined that path of humanity uh, and Europe uh, more specifically, but
3: yeah, it
2: was just some chance like, like this.
3: Yes, it's, it's not very often where you think, you know, people, you, you often say, or people often say, oh, one person doesn't make a difference. (laughs) You know, it's about, you know, cultures changing over time. But sometimes it really is one person or a small group of people anyway that really do make a difference, intentional or unintentional. Mm, Yeah. When when I was writing this part of the book, you know, at the beginnings of of, of slavery, of black black people from Africa, slavery of Western Central Africa in, in the main... It was all the Black Lives Matter protests where people were having a melt, white, usually white men, having a complete meltdown <laughs> <laughs> because, and I'm not having a go, I'm, in a weird way, I almost felt sorry for them. They could not compute what on earth was happening because they'd been told that Great Britain was great. We get one lesson at school. I hope it's different now, but people of my age, Got one lesson at school about the slave trade and it was, oh, the slave trade was bad. There's that famous picture of all all the slaves lined up, you know, in the hull of that ship, the Brooks ship. It's a very famous drawing. And then, you know, on the double page of your textbook, that's on one page. And then the facing page, it's, oh, and the British abolish slavery. Aren't we brilliant? That's essentially the lesson in a nutshell. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a lot of not white people saying, no, you're not great. In fact, absolutely. Actually, you're pretty, well, not you specifically, but you know, as a whole, you know, there's a lot to answer for and they just didn't know what to do. And there's that infamous, I don't know if you remember this, there was a guy guarding the Winston Churchill statue. Yeah, I remember that. And he was giving, and he was giving Nazi salutes. I mean, where do you start to, you know, if you walked up to that guy, how would you start to unpack that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> um, So it was very much in, in mind. I thought, okay, that, that, at that point I thought, right, we really need to connect the dots here through, like I just described, that like kind of piece of bad luck, but how yeah. they, you know, black people through no, no fault of their own at all got caught up in this and you can connect the dots, you know, right all the way back. And, okay, it wasn't sugar at first that made be displaced those Africans, but it was sugar that um, accelerated the fighting between the European nations and accelerated their spread over the Americas.
2: Mm. Talk to us a little bit about the life of, um, of slaves in, in a sugar plantation because that's quite the harring, I think, story.
3: Yeah, uh, it was a difficult one to write, that one. It was very stressful. When I was writing it, I was very worried that I was going to be, that I could come across as gratuitous because Mm -hmm. I very graphically, well, I don't describe, I quote people describing it. I tried not to use my words as much as possible. It's not a lazy get out. (laughs) I thought if I can find somebody who was there, even better somebody who was a slave themselves to tell their Mm. story, then I will use their words. It's not my place. Unless I have to, there's no other way around it. It's, it's not my place to put words into people's mouths. Mm. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff was absolutely shocking and all because, you know, they, they really thought that um, they wanted to be there or that the slavery <laughs> would be worse or the treatment would be worse by the other people in Africa. And these people were queuing up <laughs> to be treated in, from their point of view, it's an amazing way. You know, and they were they were housed in oh my God. huts made out of leftover cane garbage. You know, just the, the, the crushed canes. That was what they were yeah. living in. That's if they survived the the voyage.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you survived the voyage, malnourished.
3: Mm. I mean, F- Philip Curtin is, is is the historian that really worked out the statistics of that um, transatlantic journey, because I mean, it's amazing what he did. He just went through all of the accounts of slaves to the whole of the slave trade. So this isn't the official count. There's a lot of, um, you know, clandestine trade that was going on. But it was just under 13 million Africans moved from Africa to the West Indies and to South America. And Mm. only 75% of them actually got there. So Mm. a quarter of them died en route because the conditions were just so awful whether that's just the dysentery that broke out the fact that boats had to wait ages in africa till they filled it up something you don't necessarily think about Um, you know it's it's quite hard to capture hundreds of people who don't want to be captured (laughs) so it takes ages you know to actually fill up the, the boat so some people are sat you know in the hull of ships for months before they even get a chance to. Set off, and then there's other things like the scurvy and all sorts of things that you associate with with long journeys. And then there's yeah. the ordeal of getting into the harbors, where you know they're just getting tossed about in boats and bones broken, and mm-hmm. you know. And that, I mean, it's just a taster of the horrificness that's they're going to be subjected to. You know, so it's, it was it was a really exhausting, mentally exhausting thing to thing to write because, like I say, you think you think you know about these things, but then you find these accounts by slaves or sometimes it's the white people who were running the show or maybe just people who were observing. And it's just unbelievable, you know, slaves being sold per pound, you know, like they're a piece of meat, you know, just stuff like that, kind of the dehumanisation of it is, I guess, on some levels, probably the the worst. I mean, I know obviously being being beaten and worked so hard is obviously awful, but the the way they dehumanised, so cleverly dehumanised them, you know, so that people wouldn't mm. feel guilty for... Because, you, you know, you're just asking... Okay, you might be a sugar baron with a great big... You're basically some kind of psychopath <laughs> running this big... Yeah. Um, little, well, your own little empire, sugar empire. But you employ normal people. So how do you get them to do all this awful stuff, just lie and tell them these people want to be treated like this? And it's no, it does them good. They like it. Yeah,
2: they like it. They deserve it. That's
3: how they... Yeah, just try to assuage their guilt as much as possible because obviously nobody would do that
2: yeah so all these harrowing stories that you were finding out so you were finding accounts from the time while while you were writing your book Mm. and you were uncovering more and more of this um dark history of sugar i mean did you go did you go out of of your way to find that or it was kind of because you were writing the history of sugar these things were well, there obvious But we, well,
3: yeah. yeah, yes and no. I suppose. I mean, obviously, mm. you don't need to do much research before you know slavery's got to be a major part of the book. Yeah, um, for sure. But those accounts, I was not aware of most of those accounts before I started looking. So I, it became, I think it's maybe three chapters of the book, which perhaps some people might say that's a bit too much, but I just think it's very important. It's a bit of history that's, well, let's say in the past has been a bit flabby, you know, and people have not yeah. really done the work because it's, people go, oh, historians, uh oh, they're changing the history, these woke historians. It's like, no, we're just saying all the stuff that the other people missed out. It wasn't hard to find. Yeah. I wrote this during lockdown, so it was all books that were online mm. on Google Books. We can all find this information now. Yeah. It's all there. Primary sources. They're all there.
2: Exactly. But that's the thing, it's primary sources. It's not I'm not, I'm not made making it up. up, and up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Going, yeah.
3: Let's destroy these people with a lot of made up woke nonsense. It's <laughs> I'm literally quoting people. The people running the places, not just, you know, not necessarily just the slaves themselves. You know, it's, yeah. it's all it's all there yeah. in black and white. We just, nobody reports it because that's not, from the point of view of where I'm from, that's not Great Britain, is it? It's not very great. So we'll miss those bits out and maybe nobody will see them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I think, I suppose, the common people notice at some point because that's why there was a, this push of, uh, abolishing slavery in the 19th century, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it had something to do with sugar again, that bit, kind of. Like, people noticed that the cheap and abundant sugar in Britain was uh, because there was slavery somewhere else. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, I was saying before how um, how pliable we are and how we just be in for it. That's not the case with everybody. And right from the beginning, right from enslaving the indigenous people before the African slave trade got going, there were people against it, but they were a minority. Sometimes mm. they were fairly prominent people and, you know, they would give them little tours and make sure that they didn't see the whippings. You know, they said to what, you know, maybe the overseers, oh, so-and-so's coming tomorrow, so, you know, don't whip people as much. Right. Or, you know, we'll, we'll show <laughs> them the nice bits so that people wouldn't cotton on. But eventually, yes, people really cottoned on, especially when it became mass, I suppose, in enslavement of Africans when people realised who was there, because I mean we're all guilty of it now. You get given a thing, it's cheap, it's great. I'll pay the money. Yeah. Don't think about it. There was enough stuff kind of beginning to filter down by the end of the 18th century. And people really started to take notice. There were quite a few freed slaves at this point managing to find, or, and, and or escaped slaves managed to find their ways yeah. to Britain. And they knew that, and I'm not sure if I would have been, I would have done this if I were them. They knew that they had to come over and they had to essentially make friends with these people and convince mm-hmm. them it was a bad thing. And it was very much Quaker's who kind of really pricked their ears up and middle-class women who didn't have very much to do because, you know, they were employing servants to run the house, but it was Mm. considered vulgar to get a job. So they had lots of time on their hands. So that's how it kind of began, these kind of three different, very different types of people, devout Quakers, essentially bored middle-class or upper-middle-class housewives and escaped or freed slaves. Mm. But they chipped away, and eventually important people got involved, like um, Josiah Wedgwood. You know, made all the beautiful Staffordshire porcelain. He got behind it. Mm. A an MP, William Wilberforce, got behind it. And I mean, William Wilberforce. I mean, God bless him. He was an MP, an independent MP, and he tried to get an act for abolition through through the Houses of Parliament so like fourteen times. And you know, <laughs> Good for God him. love him. Persistent. Absolutely persistent. Eventually, uh, the Whigs, who were kind of the um, more well, by our standards today, they're not they're not left wing, but by the standards <laughs> of the day, they were fairly liberal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they really ran with it, and suddenly it became the big topic for the general election, and it mm. was a landslide win. So, because the Tories were um, essentially saying the country is going to go bust because we need slaves and we need sugar. If we get rid of slavery on the sugar islands, the sugar colonies, we're screwed. Do you want to live in a, in a country where we're all starving to death? That, that was their line of argument. And, all oh. right, it took 14 goes, but fair play. Eventually we said, no, we're not taking this nonsense. This is obviously nonsense. So, yes, it, it did go through eventually, yeah.
2: Fantastic. <laughs> Finally. Finally. Yeah, yeah. And now for the exclusive bit for Patreon backers only. Have a peek. Since then, mm-hmm. so the history of sugar, is it getting any brighter? <laughs> Since then? Yeah, well,
3: well, the pockets are getting brighter, let's say. Um, I mean, exploitation has always been associated with it. Abolishing slavery did not end exploitation. If anything, it may worse to some you know, some degrees. But you know there are the balls in our core. We've got to change it because otherwise, it's nothing. Nothing's going to happen.
2: Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if not now, then when? Mm. <laughs> we have to. We have to do something
3: now. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So we better get cracking.
2: Mm. <laughs> excellent um <laughs> well we can talk for hours of course <laughs> all night if you want to but i guess you have other things to do <laughs> um thank you so much for coming in the podcast and um talking with me about um the dark history the right. dark side of sugar it's been
3: good it? it was good talking about the kind of the early days of sugar people don't usually ask me to talk about those so that was that was That was uh, fun to talk about.
2: Yeah, yeah. at least we had that bit. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, see you... Well, we talk again online and all that stuff. Okay, thank you. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas. And this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Join us next time for more archaeogastronomical adventures. If you liked uh, this episode, please uh, leave uh, a review and rate it. And also, if you would like the episodes ad-free with extra content, please sign up on our Patreon and uh, become a subscriber there to get the best archaeogastronomical content out there. Thank you. Bye. Bye.